There are some teams, your family, your block, your race, that you're just born into. It is not up for discussion until one day it is. Today, on the next Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR, Choosing Sides. Snap Judgment, storytelling with a beat. Stay tuned. This Snap Judgment podcast is supported by MailChimp. More than 5 million people and businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. And MailChimp also distributes hats for cats and small dogs. More at MailChimp.com. Okay, so, Playground, Fancher Elementary School, Mount Pleasant, Michigan, all the obvious choices had already been made. Danny Walters picked, Corey Nelson picked, Wendy Ann Marshall picked, and then there were two, Sam Bringer and myself. I stood there, waiting in the loser pile, made the casual bend down to tie my shoes because my shoes really needed tying. Waiting. 50-50% chance of the unthinkable happening. So I looked up. Looked him in the eye. The kid with the last pick. The kid who held my eternal ridicule in his hand. And that kid was my mortal enemy. He was two years older than me. He lived four houses down from me. And each and every night, he could never, ever place his head upon his fluffy down pillow unless he found a way to torment me first. The wedgies, the wet willies, the dousings, the clipped bicycle brakes, the old broken chair falling behind trick, the famous empty lunchbox, the kick-me sticker, the missing dog. Yeah, the missing dog. And his personal favorite. His personal favorite, the dude, I'm so sorry, but your mother's been in a terrible accident trick. Yes, my enemy has visited each and every one of these upon me. He grinned, stuck out his finger and started in with the meeny, meeny, miny, just do it, meeny, do it. Mo. And I was not the last person picked. No, I was the second to last person picked, and this might not seem like much to you. You might not be impressed, but even though my enemy hated me, he hated losing kickball even more. And that made all the difference. And now, now it was us against them. I had a team. I had a side, I had a place. He would fight for me and I. I would fight for him. Today, on Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, we proudly present Choosing Sides. Choosing Amazing stories from real people deciding exactly which team it is they're going to play for. My name is Glenn Washington. Get ready because this is Snap Judgment. So, a lot of you know that I grew up in this crazy religious cult, right? And when I left that organization, 
I wanted to tell the people still involved. I wanted to tell them a lot of things. I wanted to let them know that Santa Claus was probably not the devil. I wanted them to understand that white people did not form the lost tribe of Israel and that Jesus probably wasn't going to be here next week. But I had this kind of internal conflict because as much as I wanted to preach, if that cult taught me anything, it's that you've got to take people where they are, that only when the student is ready will the teacher appear. So I was quite intrigued when I found someone who was willing to force the issue. This guy, this guy named Vikram Gandhi. I was born in New York and I grew up in New Jersey. Like me, Vikram had a rather strict religious upbringing. In his case, he was raised in a Hindu household. And as Vikram grew to manhood, he became interested in some of the teachers, the gurus of his faith. He became so interested, in fact, that he decided to make a film about them. I went and got a hug from the hugging saint or you know, I went and saw this one woman who just sat in a chair. She was an Indian woman, and people lined up in New York to not even give her a hug, like the hugging saint, but to actually just bow in front of her, and she didn't say a word. There was something about the artifice of the spiritual leader that seemed not authentic to me. And I thought, you know what, it would be really funny if I just became one of these people. I'll create a character online, like the Dalai Lama. There'll be like quotes on Facebook. He'll have a website and you could buy books from him. Vikram named this new character, his new self, Kumare. The basic character is me growing out a really long beard and not cutting my hair for like two years. I got a saffron colored vest made and then I got a bunch of sarongs, took off my shoes. The root of the Kumari voice is just this sound. Uh, I don't exactly know where that sound comes from, but it's just... Uh. And then everything sort of comes out of that. Um, and it's like, hello. When I met people as Kumari, I would say, hello, my name is Kumari. I am from a place in my mind. That place is called Alikash. Every guru has to start somewhere. So Vikram had two of his producers pose as students of Kumare. They asked a woman named Tish Hagel if they could use her studios. And they organized yoga workshops around the Phoenix, Arizona area. And no joke, Kumari can do some real yoga, serious poses and stuff. He's super bendy. So he'd do that for a while. But then he'd just start making stuff up. We call this one a blue light meditation. And you look, focus, other person face into eyes, okay? Until you feel yourself inside other person, okay? Imagine that. <laughs> and in just a little bit of time, Kumari started drawing the notice of various spiritual seekers. I consider Kumari to be a living embodiment of the divine. There are so many gurus in India. I've seen many of them, they are just fake because they just want attention and maybe money and fame. But meeting Kumari, I thought he had the positive mind and attitude. So I think he's a real teacher. Kumari was very real to those around him, and the experience, to me, was actually very real as well. When you're living a sort of a double life in a way, and, and you realize the fictional or quote fictional version of you is so charismatic and so lovable to others, you wonder why you're not that person all the time. Oh, you are not average. <laughs> Thank you. I would love to know him even more. While the project may have started off as an elaborate prank, Kumari did, in fact, have something that he was trying to teach. My philosophy is the mirror philosophy. That is that all that you are seeing inside of me as a guru, you have inside yourself. That which you find divine in myself, you have inside. Therefore, you do not need a guru. 
you just simply need to find the guru inside yourself. Kumari eventually gained a core group of 14 disciples. They met regularly at his house. And the crazy thing is, is that the people who came, they came because they got something out of it. The experience with Kamari has affected my life and I feel like it has changed my teaching. It's given me uh, the same thing that the students feel, that confidence. I will remember from the day I die, I will tell my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids about this wonderful person that came into my life and changed me. Every day, Kumari's followers grew more and more deeply attached to the character that he pretended to be. What you have been thinking for last week about your life? I feel like I've been forcing my marriage to work for a long time and forcing and fighting. I don't even believe in marriage. I don't know. I don't want to be there. I want to go. Understand, this is a guy from New Jersey without any professional training, and he's fielding marriage questions. It was time to tell people who he really was. I could storyboard every scene, but whenever I tried to think about how the unveiling would go, you know, my, I just couldn't, I couldn't process it in my head. Kamari gathers his followers together for something he calls the unveiling. He's got to let people know the truth, but Kamari is nervous. He doesn't know how people are going to react by discovering that they're part of someone else's game. Today is uh, the unveiling. At the unveiling, we uh, unveil our true self. To begin, I will reveal my true self. You see, I don't know if uh, I am who you think that I am. You see, he can't do it. The guru chickens out, but he can't get off that easily. So later, Kumari reassembles the flock and he tries another approach. So I made a video um, and in the video I talk to people as Kumari and I tell everyone the story of how Vikram became Kumari. Hello Gurus. By now you must understand my teaching. That the external Guru is an illusion. That he only exists to help you find the truth. That the Guru is inside of you. So now I would like to introduce you to the Guru inside of me. Right at the end of the video playing to everybody in a room, I walked out and presented myself clean-shaven in American clothes, dressed like I normally dress. And, hello, uh, Gurus. Said hello. My, my name, name is Vikram. Vikram. And my and ideal my self ideal is Kumari. Self is Kumari. Wow. When you did that, what did your followers do? Well, um, there's a mixed reaction from people. Some people didn't stick around very long, and some people uh, stuck around to take photos and hug and relate ideas and, you know, um, to start a new friendship in a way with me. My name is Tish. I am the owner of a yoga studio where Kamari did filming for his project. In June, I get an invitation to a final farewell. And when we arrived late, uh, the unveiling had actually already happened. The producers would not let us go inside. They said, we want to talk to you before you go in because you will be shocked when you go in. We just want you to understand that we have a clear message here and how much we appreciated your involvement and help and openness to bring these students to us. In order to expose the true guru, we have to kill the guru. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. Tell me what I'm going to see when I go in there. 
They seem very nervous. One of them would not make eye contact with me. So we walk in and sit down in the back. And there's bright lights, everybody's very dressed up. And up at the top on the stage is Vikram, and I didn't recognize him at first. And then we did. And it was very, very clear to me. I was not gonna spend one more minute of my life wasting my time with that. I was not gonna help further his cause anymore by even staying in the room and letting him talk to me and explain himself. The first two principles to practicing yoga have nothing to do with the yoga postures. And the very first one is called ahimsa, which is non-harming. And the second one is satya, truthfulness. And I stood out there and talked to the producers and I said, you guys have violated the first two foundational principles that are so fundamental to practicing yoga by harming so many people and doing nothing but lying from the minute you contacted me. And I said, your message to me does not justify the means that you use to deliver that message. They just kept saying over and over again, but the message, but the message, look at these people, they're so happy. And I said, how do you know those people are happy? They're probably embarrassed. We found out that Kumari wasn't who he said he was from someone else. When we actually ran into her, she told us that it was all a hoax and they duped us and they punked us. One of the things that I think I felt most angry about was that we never received a call from anybody with the information that we had missed. The conclusion that I really came to was that the work that I had done with Kumari was of value regardless of the person that he was or wasn't, as it had turned out. I liked Kumari as the person, and the person that I was seeing was Vikram. He may have been talking with an accent and dressed in different kinds of clothes, but like he was still the same person, which I think is what allowed me to actually become friends with Vikram, despite everything. He is... A friend of yours? Yeah, that's fair to say. He actually was the officiant at um, at our wedding. So, yeah, we are definitely pretty close with Vikram. Would you treat a friend the way Kumare treated you? Um, that's a very interesting question. Um, the reality of the situation is that he wasn't completely honest with us. But Kumari was nothing but friendly and loving towards us. He was the listening ear that I think so many people desperately crave. Vikram, if someone came to you and said, I get where you're coming from with this, but I feel like I was manipulated for a project, how would you answer them? The only thing I can say is that I never took anything lightly. To me, the hardest thing to hear is when somebody is just focused on whether I'm a good person or not. That doesn't matter. Vikram Gandhi is a filmmaker living in Los Angeles. And to see the transformation from regular guy to guru, we'll have a link to his film Kumari on our website, snapjudgment.org. I'd like to thank Tish Hagel and Rachel Stricker for speaking with The Snap. And if you want to share your thoughts on the whole adventure, hit us up on Facebook. That story was produced by Nick Vandergold. You're listening to Snap Judgment, the Choosing Sides episode. And when we return, it's going to get cold, real cold. So we're going to eat caribou fat whipped on a stick, for real. When Snap Judgment, the Choosing Sides episode continues, stay tuned. Snap Judgment is supported by Squarespace, 
all in one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. What? What? You want a free trial? You want 10% off? Well, visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code SNAP at checkout. And you might be thinking, oh, I've got a brother in law who's good with computers. Please. That fool's gonna do nothing but come over, eat up all your snacks, and get peanut butter on the PlayStation. Use Squarespace instead. Now you're in control. It's simple and easy. Drag and drop content to get a design that looks great on desktop and mobile devices. And if you have a question, it's 24-7 support. Plans start at 8 bucks a month and include a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Keep it professional. Keep it real. Start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. And when you sign up for Squarespace, use the offer code SNAP to get your 10% discount on your first purchase. Squarespace. A better web starts with your website. Thanks for listening to Snap. Want to freshen up your mix of podcasts? Maybe something funny or something brave? Or how about big ideas and time to really sink into them? Okay then, NPR Podcasts can help. Browse them all and find some new favorites on iTunes under Podcasts. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR, the Choosing Sides episode. Today, we're nosing into situations where neutrality is not an option. Now, you know, the forces that make us choose one thing or the other, they're often people, family, our neighbors, our boss. But sometimes, that which makes you decide where you stand, it's so much bigger than any one person. For our next piece, Snap Judgment's Anna Sussman takes us to the top of the world. We would eat caribou meat a lot. And uh, muktuk, it's the outer skin of a whale, a beluga whale. And then we have a certain thing called Eskimo ice cream. It's made with rendered caribou fat, and then you whip it up and put berries and meat in it, and it's very delicious. Margaret Pokiak's family lived in a one-room tent insulated with ice bricks on an island in the Arctic Ocean in northern Canada. Well, when I was growing up, we never went any to town or anything because there was no towns to go to. We'd get a year's supply of food, and then we'd spend all winter. Her family is Inuit. They hunted and fished and traded fur. And then we'd go out and play uh, with the caribou hide balls. We have balls uh, that's made with fur, with hairy side inside. And we'd travel by dog team out for a drive or a ride. My dad would make up little beds and I'd have a polar bear skin that's on the floor side and then the caribou uh, hide on top of that. At night, Margaret's half-sister would read stories to the family in the tent. She had been sent to a residential school, run by the Catholic Church and the Canadian government for Inuit kids, so she knew how to read. Margaret didn't understand the English words her sister read aloud, but she was fascinated. I didn't even know what she's talking about, but it sounds like it was very, very interesting. And that's what my interest in learning to read came about. Margaret wanted to go to school, but there weren't any schools near the island, so her only option was to go to a residential school, like her sister. Her father had also been to a residential school, and he and her sister would warn Margaret, you don't really want to go there. They would say that, but you just don't understand things like that when you're a kid, you know, a little kid. But I knew one thing for sure, that I had it in my head that I was going to learn to read. In lots of places, the police and the missionaries were forcibly removing kids from their homes and taking them off to these residential schools. Families would literally hide their kids under beds and in the bush. Nobody wanted to go. But Margaret didn't know any better, 
So when the ice melted on the ocean, Margaret's family boarded a boat to the mainland. And uh, mom and dad, uh, they took me to the school and uh, they weren't hardly saying anything. We all said our goodbyes and uh, they left. About half the children at the school were Inuit, and the other half were from different native tribes. The nuns took their handmade clothes and replaced them with uniforms, and forbid them all from speaking their native languages. Margaret realized very quickly that the school was not what she had hoped, and that she was more alone than she ever could have imagined. She was eight years old. You don't understand what they're talking about, and you weren't allowed to use your language. They'd say, shh. So it's, you feel very isolated. I wondered why I even wanted to go to school because I'd, I thought the very first thing they would do is teach me how to read and write, and that wasn't, that wasn't it at all. She didn't even enter a classroom for her first three months at the school. We had to do chores like scrubbing floors. and uh... The kids had to get the school ready for the winter, cleaning and unloading supplies from barges. Everybody had to unload the cordwood, you know. It's it's a lineup like a chain gang. And the first three or four days, you just think you're dying when you wake up. You ache so much. You you carry on, and then at night, you see, you hear a lot of children. We all will be crying. And a lot of them try not to make any sound, but you see, hear the little ones. They have nobody to tell them it's going to be okay. You learn how not to cry, and uh, uh, I just—it was very hard. Their main goal was to teach you how to be a Catholic, and they'd tell us that if we didn't get our parents converted, that they were going to go to hell, and then when you're a little kid, you just don't want to— your parents go to hell. Uh, when they first asked me to kneel down, I didn't know what I was supposed to do. Margaret wanted to go home, but she was forbidden from writing to her parents to tell them how unhappy she was. And then in the middle of the dark northwest winter, she got her chance. Uh, before Christmas time, they want us to go to the radio station and uh, say hi to your folks. The nuns brought the kids to a local radio station. They were going to broadcast holiday messages out to the remote, snowy islands of the north. All the girls were happy and said, oh, we would be talking to our parents on the radio station. And so, oh, goody, I can let them know that I want to go home. And please come and get me. So we walked over to where the radio station was. I was waiting outside with the rest of the girls, maybe about... 30, I think, and they'd bring us in one by one. I was very excited. I thought, finally, I'm going to be able to tell what I really wanted to say to my parents. And we're all trying to move around so we can stay warm because it's very cold up there. Everyone had gotten in there, and I was maybe three or four of the last child to go in. And then they gave me a piece of paper, and they said, you can read that, and... Of course, they they wanted to say that they were treating me really good. And I thought, well, that's not how I felt. And I, I didn't want to say that, so uh, it was my turn. I got in front of the microphone. Uh, but I wouldn't say anything. I could tell the nun was very mad. Uh, but she couldn't say anything loudly. I just absolutely never said anything, and... And that was that. Her parents were listening to the radio, waiting for her to speak. They could hear her breathing. They knew something was up. But there's hardly anything they could do about it because they were hundreds of miles away. There was no way for her parents to come and get her. They were on an island in the middle of the ocean. It was two years before the ice melted enough for Margaret and the other students to board about home for the summer. We were all so happy and we were we kept stopping and letting off most of the children along the Mackenzie River. When we arrived in Taktuyaktak, everyone got off the boat. 
I seen my mom and I went up to her and uh, I was standing in front of her and she didn't recognize me because I had grown and I was all dark brown from the sun from the last two years. She looked at me and she said, not my girl, not my girl. And that's the first English words I ever heard her say. It was the worst kind of feeling a person can have, I think, without actually dying. And, and the food, I wasn't used to eating the food that I grew up with, and everything tasted, they smelled so strong, and uh, I wasn't used to it at all, and I wouldn't eat. I couldn't, I had lost my language, and I couldn't understand any words at all. It was quite awful not being able to speak to your mother. And did you want to go back to school? No, I didn't. Uh, I told uh, Dad I never want to go back to school. But it wasn't up to her. The missionaries would come back to collect the children. You learn how to hide when you you think they're coming. So it's quite scary that when they think that you, uh, they're going to find you and take you away. But there was no way the Inuit could hide from the rest of Canada. Outsiders were flooding into the island. And the government, together with missionaries, were taking away more and more children. Margaret's father pretty much saw the writing on the wall. His kids would need certain skills to compete. He was not excited about it. It's just a... Like, if you want to be in tune with the world, you have to kind of use your own judgment at times. And he told Margaret he had to send her little sisters to school. And he needed to send her, too, to take care of them. He figured my little sisters would be okay if I went with them. That spring, Margaret climbed into a boat with her two little sisters from a nearby town they called Tuck. As soon as we got on the boat, I made sure that uh, my little sisters were with me. And we all sat together, and uh, I even have a picture of someone I'd taken. We all looked so sad, and we were all sitting together in a group. My sisters and I, we were watching Tuck getting farther and farther away, and we were all trying not to cry. We were not happy, but we were just... Okay, being together. When Margaret Polkiak and her sisters left on the boat that day, they had no idea that one of Margaret's sisters would go on to become the first Inuit nurse in Canada. And of Margaret's 16 brothers and sisters, about half went to live in mainstream Canada, and half continued to live traditionally. The Canadian government eventually apologized for the residential school's treatment of Inuit children and Margaret. Margaret eventually fell in love with a cowboy and moved to a farm down south. To find out more about the Inuit people who were systematically cut off from their cultures, we'll have a link to more information on our website, snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Anna Sussman. You're listening to Snap Judgment, storytelling with the beat. We'll be right back in a moment. Stay tuned. Don't forget to check out all the other NPR podcasts available for free on iTunes. Okay, so I was born into a church that didn't believe in doctors. Instead, Our church taught that true healing, real healing, could only come from the Lord. And the pastor let us know that sickness and disease were traps laid by the devil. And when I was six or seven, 
I was caught by one of Satan's snares. I had this pain in my ear. But pain, it feels like too soft a word. It felt like like something living was eating its way through my skull. Pain like, I just remember writhing on the floor, screaming for the hurt to stop. Our pastor came to the house, and according to our tradition, he had a piece of cloth. He poured a special anointing oil on that cloth and placed it on my ear and put his hand over the cloth. My parents, they laid their hands over his, everyone pressing into my side. Even as I screamed, they prayed. We know, dear Lord, that you do not mean for this boy to suffer. The pastor's hand tight against my ear. We know that this is an attack from evil forces and we rebuke this devil in Jesus' name. I couldn't see, I couldn't move. We demand Satan quit this boy. It wasn't just inside my head. The pain spiked inside my mind. And right there, in the middle of the floor, with the pastors, my mother, my father, pressing their hands against my head, praying, out Satan. I heard my ear explode. And just like that, the hurting stopped. I felt something dripping out of my ear. I must have smiled. The pastor and my parents start hugging each other and praising God for his kindness. We've seen a miracle here today. A miracle. In the weeks that followed, I waited and waited for my hearing to return all the way. I took to asking people to repeat themselves. What did you say again? Could you say that one more time? But I could still hear mostly, and I knew that the Lord worked in mysterious ways. So when the pastor asked in church how many of us had ever seen a miracle before, I always stood first to recall how the Lord had lifted fire from the side of my head, a miracle from God for me. I grew older and advised friends and family to have faith to know that you can't presume to limit God's power. And when I was a teenager, my friend James, his dad got sick. Something was sapping his strength. So he went to the doctor. Not for treatment. That was against the rules. Just for diagnosis. So the church would know exactly what to pray for. They did some tests, and the answer came back liver cancer. The doctors wanted to intervene right away. They said they'd caught it early, that with aggressive treatment, they could fight it. But James's father was a man of deep faith. He told the doctors not to worry. He told them everything was going to be just fine. But James was scared for his pops. He wanted his dad to go ahead and get the treatment. I wanted to tell James about my miracle. But for some reason, I just couldn't. It didn't seem right. But still, I stood there as others told their stories. As they told James to have faith. They told James to expect miracles. They explained again and again that the Lord works in mysterious ways. And as a community, we expected a healing. We all did. We prayed. We fasted. And watching James's father, his faith, his, his certainty, it was beautiful. And when the disease finally trapped him in a bed, he was the one who kept reaching out to touch us, to keep our spirits up. Be patient, he said. God has his own calendar expect a miracle and we did we wanted it for this good man we waited we waited and then surrounded by the people who loved him 
James' father died. And after he passed, I felt empty. I felt sad. Of course, I wondered what it would be like to lose my own father. But in addition to all of that, I felt tricked. (laughs) And yeah, I felt stupid. Because deep down, I did expect a miracle. Only a couple of weeks later in church, the pastor reminded us to be strong and to remember that the Lord works in mysterious ways. And when he said it, the looks of cold anger, the congregation glancing around at each other, mysterious ways, it was too soon. It just felt too soon. And I didn't know it. But looking back, those words, they feel like the beginning of the end for me. After services, the oldest lady in the church, she said it out loud. She said she'd been going to a doctor for years. That's what the good Lord made doctors for, to keep her dancing. (laughs) This was blasphemy. But she was too old to get kicked out of the church. And when she spoke... I saw other people nodding in agreement. There was no big declaration. It just seemed like half the congregation just decided. They just decided they were going to do things a different way. And I thought, you know what? Maybe. Maybe I should go and get my ear checked out by a professional. So, for my very first doctor's appointment... I went to an ear specialist. And when the doctor started examining my ear, the look on his face made me feel ashamed. And under his examination, he poked something, scraped something, and I could hear him. Maybe not as loudly as I should, but I could hear him. I could hear him when he whispered that something bad had happened here. When he said, oh, no, 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 what happened here? I could hear him. I could hear every single word. Step Judgment Stephanie Fu drops us into another locale altogether. Louisiana. Stephanie Fu, take it away. So a couple of months ago, I found myself deep in the bayou of Louisiana, where the houses are on stilts, and the gas stations have these big signs advertising fresh shrimp. And it was there I met Kirby Verrett. Okay, my name is Kirby Verrett. I met Kirby in his church because he's a Methodist preacher. He's also a Homa Indian. And he comes from legit Bayou stock. People like his grandpa, Mateel. Grandfather Mateel Verrett. Uh, he was very much of a, of a hermit in a sense. You couldn't get to his camp by car. You had to come there by boat. This little bitty camp, I mean, it might have been 10 feet by 12 feet. He was known for living by himself with his 17 dogs. That was it. Yeah, he loved dogs. Each of those dogs had a purpose to help him hunt. He had spotters, retrievers. Living that far out in the bayou, Mateel wasn't going to the Piggly Wiggly to get eggs. He was just one of those men that loved living off the land and the water and providing for himself and 
But unfortunately, the, uh, the game warden always thought Matt Deal was poaching deer. And technically, Mathiel was doing that. But... I don't know why you call it poaching if you're killing it for food. But still, it was considered illegal. And so this game warden had made up his mind that he was going to catch Matt Deal with a deer. Fortunately, Grandpa Mathiel had a secret weapon, a dog named Brown. Brown, a black and white hound. Brown's main job was to listen for the game warden. And he had the skills of hearing when the, the game warden would launch his boat about a half mile down the intercoastal. The moment that boat would hit the water and the game warden would start that motor, Brown would give a little a warning, letting them know that company's coming. And so uh, Grandpa would start heating up the water, put on some coffee. Hide any pelts he might have, look casual. And by the time the game warden would pull up to my grandfather's dock, coffee was just being made. And so the game warden would eye Mathiel suspiciously, but he wouldn't ever find any deer. All thanks to Brown the dog. Brown became my grandfather's favorite companion. My grandfather would go so far as, as to even have a special pair of sunglasses he had for him, state trooper uh, glasses, big aviator glasses. He had a white shirt. He had only the front four. He'd put on them with a tie. He even folded a brown paper bag and made a round hat for Brown. And Grandfather Mateel dressed an awful lot like Brown himself. When he put on a hat just like the dog wore, but he didn't have two pairs of sunglasses. <laughs> so they couldn't dress alike, you might say. So imagine this big dog, fully dressed in hat, glasses, shirt, and tie, sitting at the kitchen table for meals. He would actually climb on a chair, and he had a little white cup with a green ring around it, and he knew his cup. Uh, it was unbelievable to see how that dog would sit in that chair. I mean, he was so honored. I mean, he just sat there so respectful. He had that posture that just made you feel like, golly, this dog really, he may not be a human being, but boy, he sure pretty close to it. So one day, Brown barks a warning. And sure enough, the game warden floats up on his boat. But this time, he decides, hey, I'm actually going to come in and have some of that coffee, look around. So he steps out of his boat and... All the dogs are scattered except for Brown. Brown would stand there like the guard to walk with him all the way to the camp. My, my, the game warden would say, what's wrong with Brown? He said, oh, don't worry about Brown. He said, he's just, that's the way he is. The game warden took a seat at the tiny kitchen table and looked uneasily at Brown, whose tie and paper bag hat were disconcerting, to say the least. Brown sit right next to him and staring him right in the face, you know, not taking his eye off him. Game warden just kind of, you know, it makes you feel uncomfortable when a big dog like that is just staring at you and giving you one of those low growls. Grandpa got all the coffee ready, puts a cup in front of the game warden, puts a cup in front of himself, and he reaches over and pours the coffee in the cup, and boy, the game warden's sitting there just watching that dog when game warden picks up that cup. The dog goes haywire. I mean, the dog jumps up and starts barking crazy, jumping at him, you know, with that big hound voice. The game warden's just, you know, he's cornered. Brown had the warden pinned against the wall, his teeth bared at his neck, and the warden screams, Mateo, Mateo, what's wrong with Brown? And Mateo says, Oh, he said, you're sitting in his chair drinking out of his cup. Grandpa Mateel had given the warden Brown's cup, and Brown didn't appreciate it. Game warden didn't know that the dog loved coffee. The dog knew his coffee, and he knew his cup. And this game warden drinking out of it. I mean, it, it just got him very upset. Well, legend has it, the game warden didn't come back after that. He didn't really know what all was happening out there with Mateel and that dressed-up dog, but dear be damned, he didn't care to find out. That is a, a true Bayou story. Try and talk to my friend. I might as well be talking to a dog. Try and talk to my friends, people, but I might as well be talking to a dog. Don't watch out.
here be sipping from your coffee pipe. And I say, Really, Stephanie Fool? Really, the dog dressed up like a person. He didn't like the officer drinking out of his cup, huh? All right, well, please note that neither Snap Judgment Industries, NPR, nor the Queen of Norway will vouch for the veracity of this piece, but we still thank Kirby Verrett for sharing his story. And I gotta say, that song with the dog drinking coffee, well played, Stephanie Fool, well played. made some time for yourself, ditched the knuckleheads, and arrived at the very end of the Snap Judgment episode. But don't be sad. Don't be blue. Full episodes, pictures, movies, stuff. Available right now at snapjudgment.org. Twitter, snapjudgment.org. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. You understand what I'm saying here? And how is it you are not yet my friend on the Facebook Judgment was produced by myself and the most marvelous, magical, mystery bus tour of all time. And let me introduce you to the driver himself, the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. He stole the beat from Mother Nature and mixed it with dance hall. Pat Masidi Miller. Anna Sussman says kind things about other people if other people are standing in front of her. Stephanie Fu can bench press 400 pounds. Lindsay Gorio built this city on rock and roll. I've seen Julia DeWitt steal candy from a baby. Nick Vanderkoll knows how to sasasudio. And Will Urbina can see the blue light. Now, just because the Corporation for Public Broadcasting has those nice long hallways doesn't mean you set up bowling pins and a leaderboard in front of the director's office. Even if you did happen to bowl a perfect 200 game and they're only complaining because they lost, it still doesn't make the right thing to do. I read it just like y'all said it, see? Much love, the CPB. PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, bowls like my grandmother on happy hour Thursdays. That is to say, not well. Keep the ball in your lane, Grandma. PRX.org. Now, you've probably already got it figured out. This is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you can go play darts with the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and kick their sorry behinds and call the losers by beer and watch them stand around with their hands in their pockets talking about they never heard that rule before you could do all of that and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is but this is NPR